0: But this is a summit. You're you. Uh, why do why I are know. all your only t- summits you want to talk about involve U.S. presidents? It's very like uh, Eurocentric, ethno ethnocentric, Ethro- something. It's centric in something, and <laughs> you should you need to stop. There should be a word for this. Actually, yeah. Like broaden your horizons a little bit. Like just because it's it, the guy took an armored train for God's sakes. I,
1: I know. I, I I was I was imp- I was impressed by the train. I was impressed by the train. I will give you that. The train impressed me.
0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an associate professor of government here at William & Mary. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague and chair of the Department of Government at William & Mary, Marcus Holmes. Hi, Marcus.
1: Hi, Jeff. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing well. I'm uh, excited to get a chance to chat today ahead of some travel you have planned. As we speak, Kim Jong-un is meeting with Vladimir Putin somewhere in... um, uh, not very exciting part of Russia, but it's
1: accessible by train.
0: Accessible by train, right? So Kim Jong Un, who does not like to fly, and and with the recent examples of planes just mysteriously dropping from the sky over over Russia, uh, who can blame him, right? So he's taken his armored train, which is, is pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Uh, so North Korea's leader has taken an armored train to meet with Vladimir Putin to discuss all kinds of things. The the broad partnership between Russia, and North Korea. And maybe Ukraine specifically, and so um, we've had a couple of questions about what, if anything, does this mean for the big big picture story? And I feel like it's been at least a week since we've discussed uh, Russia Ukraine, so maybe mm-hmm. uh, maybe we should have at this. What, what's your take on this uh, on this summit between between Russia and North Korea?
1: Well, it is interesting, Jeff. Uh, just at the beginning, how you know? I think each week we sit down to do an episode, and we we want to sort of go to other regions of the world and talk about other things that are happening, but there's, there's seemingly always something happening with, with Russia, uh, and often actually North Korea as well, that we that we have to talk about. And, and this week, it's, it's no different. I, uh, as, as somebody who studies uh, face-to-face diplomacy and, and uh, symmetry, um, clearly this is something that has my attention. We're, we're recording this at a time where I think not a lot has been divulged about the specifics of kind of what has come out of the meeting. I, I would expect... With these two countries, it's going to be tough. We're not going to get like, you know, great readouts, as they call them, of, of sort of like some of the intricacies of, of what they talked about. But I would expect that we'll see, you know, sort of drips and drabs of of information come out over the next uh, couple of days. And it might be interesting to see some of the specifics of things that they talked about. Thinking about it from the the big picture, though, I mean, one of the, the observations that I had just today looking at the news and seeing the train and everything, it strikes me that this is... Um, sort of a summit that is, is unique in its character. I mean, oftentimes you think of these summits as, you know, involving uh, democracies, you know, big world powers, uh, Western European leaders, you know, the United States president, all that kind of stuff. And this summit seems to be characterized by something of the opposite, like something like the summit of, you know, the isolated, right? You have uh, North Korea, which is clearly isolated and it has been for a very long time, sanctioned by, you know, uh, many of the countries uh, in the world. Um, And like literally sort of like walled off from from the rest of the international system. And I think Russia uh, certainly has sort of more interaction with other uh, states in the system. But since the Ukraine war has been at least symbolically, you know, financially kind of walled off from a lot of the rest of the the international system. Not completely. I mean, Russia still has uh, plenty of allies. Um, But if you think about it in those terms, you have these two countries that are in very sort of uh, fragile states a vis the other countries in in the system, and they it sort of has this tenor or tone of 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 isolation, um, which which to me was just striking. Like it's it's a it's a very odd um, kind of situation. Now it's it's not all that surprising uh, necessarily because you you remember back in the summer there were these delegations that went to north korea uh, china and russia to sort of like celebrating north korea's like military and that's that's not really diplomacy per se but it had that sort of feel because it was like these delegations going and celebrating you know north korea's military and there was this you know sort of like reaffirmation of uh you know defense uh spending you know secrets intelligence all that kind of stuff um and so that that was sort of a precursor to this but this happening at the highest levels uh in in summitry um is is you know, striking. It's very interesting. I think substantively, um, one of the things that came out today is that, you know, North Korea has basically pledged to give uh, the Russians armaments, like, you know, uh, uh, various types of, you know, sort of weaponry that uh, Russia was was looking for. Um, North Korea has a lot of this stuff, you know, back because they produced it, but they also have it actually going back to the, the Cold War, these like stockpiles of, of weapons that they can give. Um, and for those of you that, that sort of don't know the history, it's actually sort of a, a reversal in a way of what happened back in the 1950s when uh, the Soviet Union was the one sending weapons and artillery to the North Koreans to help them their, with their invasion of South Korea. So it's it's this kind of weird thing that you know 70 years ago there was this like flow of of weapons going one direction, and now it's it's almost the exact opposite uh, in a very different um, you know. Sort of situation where you know Russia is the one that's dealing with a, a war an invasion of of their own uh and so the the role reversal i think is is also kind of interesting, but my main takeaway is this is a summit of of the isolated this is two leaders who are uh i think increasingly isolated from the rest of the world they don't have a ton of friends and I don't mean by that uh, interpersonally I mean that you know other countries that they can turn to and so you know they're they're put together uh, uh by happenstance um and you know they're they're kind of alone with a couple exceptions, but they're, they're basically alone.
0: So as I always do, when we discuss summits, I, I have to ask Marcus, could this long train ride have been a, a zoom meeting, been an or, email or maybe an email. <laughs> I mean, give me again, the, the reason if you're, if you're these leaders, you would want to take the time. So this train, I, I Googled this while you were talking, um, mm-hmm. instead of listening to what you were saying, typical, and this train travels at a maximum speed of 25 miles an hour. To, because of our North Korea's kind of archaic rail network, and so this is not a short trip, right? And and so it's a lot of trouble to get to get out there to to have this meeting. Why are they bothering with this?
1: Well, I mean, I think actually you you, you answered partially the question yourself, right? The fact that it is slow, the fact that it's it's costly. I mean, th- I mean, on a serious note, like when when Kim Jong Un does something like this and gets on a train. By the way, he doesn't travel very often, as as people know, right? Um, he 's taking time uh, out of his schedule to do this okay, uh, but he 's also in some ways like you know putting himself in a less secure uh, position or situation than he otherwise would be i mean there 's no doubt it's it 's easier and safer to stay home than to travel you're you 're taking on some vulnerability, and I think in that vulnerability lies uh, a little bit of a of a signal right so one of the signals might be look i 'm willing to do this i 'm willing to to put myself in some some peril, let's say, I'm willing to take the time, uh, uh, pay the cost of this trip, both you know symbolic and, and you know, uh, financial, whatever the case is, to show you that I'm serious, right? And so it could be a phone call, but if you do it as a phone call, uh, no one knows, first of all. So uh, the audience doesn't, doesn't see it, right? One of the things about summits, and this is something that I, I try to explain to Jeff, uh, and now I'm speaking to like the third person, the <laughs> listener, Um, the thing about summits is it's not just the sort of interaction between the leaders. That's a crucial part of it, but it's also the, the, um, sort of like the aura of the thing, the theatrics, the visibility, you know, we talked about when, you know, Biden visited Ukraine, you were kind of skeptical that this, this really did anything. And I was explaining, well, it's not, it's not just a visit to Ukraine. You can send an email and convey a lot of the same information. It's not the information transmittal necessarily. That's always what's important. Although sometimes that, that is really important. But it's, it's the optics. It's the showing of support. It's the, it's the saying to Putin, I'm willing to – and I don't want to get too dramatic, but you know, put my life on the line, not necessarily, but I'm willing to take on some risk to do this in a very public way. Why? To show you how much I support you, right? And be- precisely because we're isolated and we don't have a lot of friends, uh, doubling down on that support and reaffirming that any chance I get – uh, is really important. So I would I would not think about summitry as sort of like information exchange only. I would think about it in terms of like what the optics are. What's the what is the symbolism? Um, and, you know, f- frankly, because of the train, I think a lot of people in the United States, and I can't speak to how other people in other countries. Well, I think people knew about this uh, uh, summit only because of the train. If he had flown to Moscow, I doubt that there's going to be as much attention uh, paid to this. It was because the train looked so either cool or interesting or unexpected, the fact that it only goes 20 miles an hour or whatever was kind of interesting. I actually think that if you think about it from that perspective, it worked. If the aim was to sort of show publicly, you know, this summit's important and we're and we're, you know, reaffirming our alliance, it kind of worked. And it worked because of very sort of weird things, like the way that the train appeared in, in imagery in, in on video, so I was just watching the video of it sort of like roll in it was It was quite quite interesting and, and by the last last thing i 'll say about this too there is also um, in Summitry this this idea of kind of putting on a show right so at the Yalta Summit, for example. Um, you know, when Churchill and, and FDR were traveling to the Alta Summit, they went in these Soviet limousines that were like armored. They weren't trains, obviously, but they were, they were somewhat similar. And they also went very slowly down these highways with Russian uh, Soviet soldiers lining the the streets. And it was all to put on this sort of like big show about you know the the importance of this event and the symbolism of it. Um, and so all of this stuff I don't I don't think you can you can discount and kind of adds to the. The, the the uniqueness of of the situation.
0: So I, I hear you, and I, I agree that that a lot of the importance of these kinds of visits is about the symbolism. It's about the the pageantry. It's about the the signal sent by the effort required to make it happen. However, that is not what I expected you to say, because if there's one thing I know about you, markets is that you believe in the importance of face to face diplomacy and looking deep into the eyes of your counterpart and judging their trustworthiness and all of this. And so, so which is it? Is it, is it the, the symbolism of the event or is it that there's some value to being in the same room with your counterpart and kind of hammering out an agreement? Jeffrey,
1: as, as usual, it's all of the above, right? I think in this particular case, because we haven't seen a lot about the details, it's kind of hard to know um exactly what value the sort of the, the face-to-face interactions themselves uh played because we which is a lack of information, right? So that's why I'm highlighting for, for the moment anyway, the kind of the, the, the pageantry and the symbolism of all the stuff that you're talking about, because based on what we, what we have, the available data to us, a lot of it is just the imagery and, and all that kind of stuff. But there's no doubt that part of, of the reason why the part of the calculus, I think, for Kim uh, and, and Putin getting together is that they want to reaffirm their their trustworthiness to one another. Uh, very clearly, they want to. They want to make sure that the other side is still on the same page. They want to get a read of the other the other person. They want to make sure that you know Putin is is you know not going to be tempted to go you know do something that the North Koreans aren't going to like or, or vice versa. So you kind of want to get a feel for what the strategic position of the other side is. Um, and I think also in this particular case, you know Putin is probably interested in seeing just how far Kim is willing. To go Like what, you know, there's there's weapons that are being, um, you know, transferred to, to Russia. How much support can he get? Like he wants to feel out Kim a little bit and figure out, like, how, how far can we take this? And, and what exactly is he willing to do? What's his bottom line? All that kind of stuff, which is definitely facilitated by face to face interactions, because you get a better read. Uh, of the person that you're interacting with. I think the problem now for us is just simply that we don't have enough information as to what uh, really went on in these in these sessions. This is just a, as a total aside, one reason why doing some of the work on summitry in the present uh, can be incredibly frustrating. Like, for example, when when Kim was meeting with Donald Trump in those two summits, we still don't have a great understanding of what happened in the meetings uh, between the two the two leaders. We know that the outcomes were uh, we know that, that Trump, you know, offered made an offer to to Kim that Kim refused. He didn't want to, um, you know, completely t- close out his nuclear reactors and, th- and all that kind of stuff. But the back and forth and what how they talked about things and where there was some progress and where there was you know sort of slippage and you know how how the two related on a personal level and whether you know one side was angry or not. Oftentimes that comes out much later. Um, it can come out like when Trump writes his uh, memoirs, which will be a v- very interesting publication if that ever happens. Um, or it can come out when things are either leaked to the press or or declassified, and so as somebody who studies face to face diplomacy, this is a major frustration uh, because people want to know like professor holmes what what 's going on with Trump and Kim um, and other than reading the newspaper reports about about the the meeting the, the the truth of the matter is is that we actually have very little insight. Uh, into these things in the present, it's it's often much later that we can we can understand what's what's going on, and so that's the other reason why I defer sometimes to the sort of pageantry because that's obvious to everybody, uh, and that becomes I think one of the more important uh, pieces in understanding what's going on, particularly for the public. I think most Americans are not paying a whole lot of attention to the inner ins and outs of what a, what's happening at a summit uh, like this, but they are paying attention to the pageantry. So we think about it sort of at different levels for the public. I think the summit is about you know, sort of the symbolism uh, more than anything else.
0: I think the news coverage of this is kind of interesting because, and of all summits, all summits are like this, where the news coverage is like, well, how did it go? What, what was agreed to? And there's, there's kind of an implication in that sort of coverage that this is where an agreement happens. But I, I fundamentally disagree. As somebody who has worked on summits from the U.S. side um, in, in government, A meeting like this, it's very unlikely that Kim is going to get on his super slow armored train and travel all this way so that there can be no agreement on anything. And so I would be shocked if there hadn't been an agreement already settled by the teams on both sides that met beforehand, and that's what causes the leaders to travel. And so one of my criticisms of the discourse around summits and how important they are and looking deep into the eyes of your counterpart is that a lot of the details of these agreements and this isn't always true but i think is probably true in this case a lot of the details of the agreements are done before anybody gets on the train and so the the reason the the leaders go to the the place where the summit is is for the photo op but if that photo op didn't happen the, the the real work was the meeting of the minds on both sides of the discussion that happened before everybody made the trip. Um, and so when we think about, OK, well, what's going to come out of this meeting? Is there going to be some agreement on North Korea providing weapons to Russia? Yeah, of course there is. That That's the purpose of had that not been the agreement. These people wouldn't be in this random place in Russia talking.
1: Jeffrey, Jeffrey, Jeffrey. We we just talked about two examples that don't fit the mold of what you're talking about with Trump and Kim, the leader of North Korea. Trump goes to Hanoi, goes to Singapore, uh, and has these meetings where there's there's no agreement. There was no there were the the diplomats hadn't like hashed out an agreement, and it's like oh we're just going to go do the photo op and sign the thing. But there shouldn't have been
0: a summit. That was that was a horrible, horrible mistake. uh, Maybe, but there was one,
1: and so and so you know I I agree with you uh, that, that there are a lot of instances. Uh, where the details have sort of been been sorted out, right? There, you know, part of part of the issue here is that, and maybe we could, you know, in a, in a future pod, we can really, you know, sort of dig deep on this because I would love to. There, there, are summits and then there's summits, right? So there, there, are some summits which are, you know, these sort of like pro forma, perfunctory. We've all, we've been working on this for decades. You know, we got everything figured out. And we're just signing some some paperwork, basically, and taking a picture. But there's other summits where, like, legitimately, both sides might have an idea of what the other side is going to say. They might have an idea on the sort of what we talk about, as like the zone of possible agreement. But they're not at all sure about where the where the the negotiations is going to is going to land, right? So for you know, we could we could. There's many examples of this. The Vienna summit between you know Kennedy and Khrushchev, which I might have mentioned on this pod before, was a situation where Kennedy was very ill prepared going into that, right? And it wasn't because he didn't spend time. You know, it's not like the State Department was like, yeah, go meet with Khrushchev and. And we're not going to give you any preparation. We're not going to tell you anything. Like, just see, see what happens. That wasn't it at all. What he was unprepared for was the direction that Khrushchev was going to take the meeting, despite the fact that the, the Americans kind of thought that they, they knew what, what Khrushchev was going to do. Turns out they had, they had misjudged that. And Khrushchev, you know, goes up and starts talking about things that Kennedy didn't actually know a whole lot about, right? So he walks into this this meeting with, you know, the, 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 the ruler of the Soviet Union, essentially, Premier Secretary of the Soviet Union, and doesn't know He he doesn't know that he doesn't know this, but he doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know what the person's going to say. And so there are summits like that where they're, like, having to figure it out on on the fly. There are also other summits, like, in Geneva, um, 1985, with with Ronald Reagan and and Mikhail Gorbachev, where there was a framework. There was sort of, like, both sides agreed to the topics that are going to be discussed. But – you know, you read the, through the transcripts, and it becomes clear that you know Ronald Reagan is not quite up to the level of sort of like preparedness and information that you know, that Gorbachev is. And so, while they sort of like understand or, or, or Reagan sort of understands the big picture, a lot of the details that Gorbachev is talking about, which are very important, he actually has to kind of like make it up on on the fly and try to like keep up with the with the conversation. And so it's in those moments, though, when you're actually not sure, kind of like where the conversation is going, that really shows the value of of these, you know, two leaders interacting. Because what happened was they were able to come to consensus and develop some understanding of one another and some agreement, despite the fact that they hadn't had this worked out, you know, uh, uh, previously. That it's actually developing within the interaction uh, itself. So long way of saying you're it's not that you're wrong, Jeff. I mean that's often the case on this podcast. you're not wrong, uh but you're only talking about a subset of of summits. I do think it's a, it's an interesting empirical like sort of puzzle, like why would anybody go to a meeting if they weren't sure what the outcome was going to be, given the costs of doing the going to the meeting and you know the the sort of cost of having it fail
0: yeah, that's what i'm saying that's I know what that's I'm what saying because you're the, a good the, rationalist. the, the failed summit is more costly, right? And right. so we will go to great lengths to make sure a uh, meeting with a, with a, our leader doesn't mm-hmm. fail. Right, we, we try, we try. We try, right? I mean, yeah. and, and if there, if it doesn't look like there's gonna be an outcome out of the meeting that lets everyone say, oh, this was a success, then we don't do the meeting, you know? And, mm-hmm. and that's I think that's been, that's at least the way the U.S. usually approaches this, although maybe there was a little break during the Trump years, um, but that's kind of been U.S., standard policy. And I think good diplomats want to prepare the field so that when the leader comes and signs the thing, everyone can say, oh, this was a big success. Your your trip was a success. No question. And so any situation where there's a risk of failure, you know, you got to have a a huge potential payoff to take that gamble. And maybe you could say that about North Korea, that that Trump went there and uh, had he gotten an agreement out of North Korea to give up their nuclear weapons program, which I don't think anyone thought it was possible but you know it, it, he he went he tried um had he succeeded then of course it would have been worth the risk of failure for him to have gone but yeah. um but it, it feels like those kinds of summits are fairly rare nowadays maybe in today's more scripted politics I don't know I don't know if that's true
1: I think that's I think that's possible uh it's they're more rare these days um I think but if you if you think back to some of like the the more consequential summits or uh, gatherings, let's call them. Like I think back to the the Camp David Accords. You know, Jimmy Carter yeah. um, brought you know Sadat and Begin together. Lots of people were telling Carter, like, this is very dangerous uh, yeah. politically because if you don't if you don't get a deal, you're going to look like a fool. And you know, I, I might have told this story on the on the podcast before, but I write about it in in my book. It's like. On day one, Jimmy Carter is like just in this room looking at these two leaders, like yelling at each other. Like you know, there's like no understanding. There's like no basic framework. It, all the work that they had done in the, the weeks and months, kind of going into Camp David, was all kind of meaningless when you had these two leaders like looking at each other. And like they, re, Carter realized they can't they can't work together. They don't they don't get along. And both sides were getting ready to leave on day one. This is a, a summit that like took place over the course of a fortnight, and they're about to leave. And be like, this is a total failure, right? So I, I think that you're probably right. If we were to go and look at all the summits and visits, high-level visits uh, over the course of the 20th century and the 21st century, um, a lot of them, maybe even most of them, will have been, like, highly scripted affairs where the outcome is kind of predetermined um, and, and not the sort of, like, consensus-building, trust-building type of stuff uh, that I'm, I'm most interested in. I think, that's, I, I think you're probably right about that. But there are, there are these examples of like Trump and, and Kim getting together and just sort of like flying by the seat of their pants, which I think is, is fascinating. Can I just say one last thing? And I want to put a plug in here uh, for, for uh, one of the, the students that I've worked with, a graduate student at Ohio State. Uh, her name is Min Sun Q, And she just w- wrote this uh, really nice dissertation looking at the optics of summits and it, their effect on public opinion. Right. And so the idea of like, you know, when you have a summit with you know, the United States and Vietnam, let's say United States and China, what effect does that have on people's attitudes towards that other country? Like going and having a summit with another country does have, that have an effect. And she shows that it does have an effect. I'll let you uh, kind of read her work uh, if you're interested. But she's doing really interesting stuff on kind of what we just talked about, the, the sort of optics and pageantry of summits and the question, not not the one that I look at, like, what do leaders get out of these interactions, but rather what does this do to the public? who is watching this uh, from afar. So check out check out her work if you get a chance.
0: That sounds, that sounds really interesting. I, I think maybe it's worth shifting this conversation slightly to the kind of substantive purpose of this meeting, which is, I think, part of a larger story related to Russia's general push for military capabilities and production um, in the midst of this very costly war. There is kind of concurrently with the news about the summit, and there's a New York Times article I'll, I'll link to in the show notes, about Russian military production now having kind of come back uh, fully from the pre-war years and exceeding the capacity that Russia had militarily before the war. So here's a quote from from this piece. Uh, Before the war, one senior Western defense official said Russia could make 100 tanks a year. Now they're producing 200. Western officials also believe Russia is on track to manufacture two million artillery shells a year, double the amount Western intelligence services had initially estimated Russia could manufacture before the war. As a result of the push, Russia is now producing more ammunition than the United States and Europe. Overall, uh, a senior Estonian defense ministry official estimated that Russia's current ammunition production is seven times greater than that of the West. So this news article comes out. We've got this meeting. Uh, between Russia and North Korea to try to arrange additional military supplies. And so some of the discourse now around this is, is, goes to this important question, have the attempts to economically isolate Russia and put sanctions on Russia and kind of shut down its military capabilities, have these attempts failed? And if so, why, what should the policy be? I mean, I think, for from, from my part, and I'll let, I'll let you chime in on this as well, I'm not sure that that straight up idea of, well, because they now, have now si- surpassed their pre-war production capability, uh, because they've now surpassed that, that sanctions have been a failure and economic isolation has been a failure. And the reason for that is that we cannot see the counterfactual, right? We do not know what Russian military capabilities would be like in the absence of an attempt at economic isolation and sanctions. And anytime a country goes to war, they're very likely to ramp up their military production capabilities. That's just a thing that countries do. And I saw um, some commentator saying, you know, Russia's ability to produce 200 tanks in a year during World War II, they could produce like 30,000 tanks in a year, right? Um, And so wartime footing means increasing these kinds of, of wartime production, increasing these kinds of military capabilities. So it's possible that because of sanctions and economic isolation, I would say it's even likely that because of these sanctions and economic isolation, Russia is well below the capacity they would have had those measures not been put in place. So comparing it to pre-war is fine, but Russia obviously hadn't ramped up uh, its military production in advance of the war. Now that they are ramping up, we can't really compare it to what the world would look like in the absence of these policies. So that's kind of one piece of it. The other piece of it is the cost that sanctions and economic isolation incur on Russia to get to this equivalent level of military production. So they may be producing double the number of tanks, right? But the costliness of that uh, of that production is much higher, right? And that takes away from other uh, Russian priorities, not just other military production, but kind of the domestic economy generally. And one of the theories behind. Uh, economically isolating Russia is to put pressure on Putin because the Russian people have to suffer under this economic isolation. So if everything is more expensive to produce than it would have been, then that is also kind of a win for sanctions and economic policy. Now, would we prefer that Russia couldn't produce this material at all Absolutely. But the fact that they have now surpassed their pre-war capabilities, to me, isn't necessarily a slam-dunk case that these policies have been a failure. What's your take on this, Marcus?
1: Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, Jeff, I got to say I completely agree with you. Uh, uh, the, the counterfactual, I think, is the main, the main one for me, where you just, we just don't know. I mean, and, and it would be terrible to sort of take the lesson that the economic sanctions like aren't working just because this one sort of variable – like, is increasing, you know what I mean? Like, if you look at an isolation, you're like, okay, I'm going to draw a causal arrow between economic uh, sanctions uh, and, like, an increase in military uh, uh, production. It's sort of like, well, I, it's, it seems, like, counterintuitive. Like, that doesn't, that doesn't seem right to me that there would be this, like, direct, you know, relationship. It seems like probably there's other things that are going on. And one of those things that, that is going on are, like, decisions about... I would imagine what what to you know spend your money on, and the resources that you do have. Where are we going to put those? And in wartime, countries decide they're going to make decisions that will put those resources towards um, you know building up their their militaries. That that seems that seems right to me. So I agree. Like the counterfactual is very hard to determine. The other thing I would say is I mean I think there's there has been in historical cases you know pretty widespread agreement um, that economic sanctions at, at the very least make it harder. Uh, for countries to continue to develop their you know uh military you know armaments and things like that. I'm thinking back to like the Iraq, you know, case in the 1990s where the United Nations like put on these you know sanctions. And I think you know most scholars looking at that case and, and certainly my recollection of, of what happened in that period is that they thought it was very difficult for you know Saddam Hussein to like create more military capabilities. And actually the sanctions you know were able to uh kind of keep their military uh, capabilities down. Um, because of bans on, you know, arm imports and and stuff like that. So I think that if you look historically, the link between economic sanctions and, and you know, hurting military uh, production is a pretty solid one. But in any given sort of instance, a country can make decisions uh, that would allow it to, you know, increase its, its productivity. And we simply don't know how much more they would have done that were the sanctions not there in the first place. So unfortunately, I think I agree.
0: And it's worth pointing out maybe that even with this ramped up production, and this article talks about a kind of increase in production really starting at the end of last year, end of 2022. But even with this ramped up production, you know, Russia remains, I think most analysts uh, assess, uh, artillery constrained, uh, missile constrained. That is, they, they can't fire as many missiles as they would like to. They can't fire as much artillery as they would like to. Um, and that re- is a good situation for the West and, and Ukraine. Of course, Ukraine also is is constrained by ammunition and artillery. But yeah. uh, this is not a situation where Russia now has the ability to kind of throw whatever it wants into the battlefield. It, it doesn't. It's still constrained. And and the the summit is kind of evidence of this, right? Nobody wants to be North Korea's business partner. This is like they're really the last choice. So it's it, the, the fact that this meeting is happening and the red carpet is being rolled out for the super slow train. Uh, all of that uh, suggests Russia's desperation in trying to build up these capabilities. And North Korea, say what you will about North Korea, does have a significant military production capability and is in a good position to you know provide this sort of thing to countries like Russia. So it, it makes sense that they would be talking, but the the fact that Russia is forced into this position I think is a good sign for the west not not a bad sign
1: yeah it's also really interesting. I mean, if you think about what sanctions have done in North Korea, like you could also make the other counterfactual argument right like so there have been a lot of sanctions on North Korea, which have i think theoretically anyway limited um, its ability to you know produce uh armament but they still have a lot, like you just pointed out, but what what would they have were it not for the economic sanctions in the first place, right like maybe it would be much more, maybe it would be much greater, and so you know the economic sanctions are not just aimed at sort of limiting uh, north korea 's nuclear program but also their conventional military arms. And, and, you know, it probably has had an effect in doing so. And if those sanctions weren't there, I think it's, it's likely that they would have produced or been able to produce uh, even more. So the, the counterfactual kind of worse in both countries in this particular case.
0: Yeah. The, the broader story in Ukraine has to do with the counteroffensive that, that Ukraine's been engaged in for uh, several months now, this summer. Today's news was an attack uh, by Ukraine on Um, A Russian naval base in Sevastopol, which is a base used to do maintenance for the entire Black Sea fleet. There appears to be damage to some of the facilities used for that maintenance, which could be a really big deal because Russia basically maintains the entire fleet from this base. So if they're unable to do repairs on submarines and ships, that could have a big effect. But there's also the kind of slow grinding progress or supposed progress um, of Ukraine pushing back against Russia's entrenched lines across two or three or four axes of attack within the country. There's a really good but really long piece um, on War on on the Rocks uh, that I will link to in the show notes um, by Michael Kaufman and and Rob Lee are two of the kind of best um, military analysts looking at, at the war, talking about the various progress in, in really minute detail for those who are interested in, in diving into this. I mean, for me, Marcus, I I, I look at the discussion of the counteroffensive and I, I always think we focus too much on where the lines of control are. We focus too much on territory gained. And the real story is about the signal being sent by that counteroffensive, by the movement of troops, because, you know, I'm, I'm less interested in the, in the kind of minutiae of the military story than I am the kind of big picture politics story, which is what's ultimately going to decide how this war ends and the terms under which it ends. And so certainly the military progress is important. I'm not saying it's not, but uh, we can kind of focus on it a little too much and miss the forest for the trees. So I think the key thing to keep in mind when you're reading articles or looking at the the counteroffensive is that there is so much attention on this counteroffensive that it is imperative for Ukraine to show progress. They feel intense pressure to show progress. They want uh, pictures of breaking through the lines and liberating cities, and that's important because it helps kind of continue this the flow of support from the West, from Western Europe and from the United States. And it also counters the idea on the part of Russia that it can somehow outweigh Ukraine and its allies and just settle in. And that eventually Western support for Ukraine will dry up and Russia will be able to just end this war on its own terms. Any progress that Ukraine can show kind of pushes back on that story. So there's there's kind of two, well, three audiences for this. There's Russia as an audience. There's the West as an audience in an attempt to kind of continue the support. And then there's a really important uh, domestic political story in Ukraine about showing progress in what is now a long, painful, grinding war that has led to a lot of suffering among Ukrainian people. And uh, so from the perspective of Ukraine's leadership, showing progress to the domestic population is really, really important. And so these kind of three audiences are, you know, essential. And that's why when we read these stories and, you know, we're kind of waiting for like a big breakthrough from a military perspective, that's not the important part of the story. The military analysts are looking at this kind of war of attrition between Ukrainian and Russian forces and, you know, how much strength do do each of the battle groups on each side have? Where are the reserves being put? What does that tell us about the strength of each of the lines? But for the political story, it's all about how do you signal progress to your to the these three audiences. There's kind of a secondary signaling story here that I also want to mention, and that's a story about the utilization of U.S. and Western support that Ukraine feels, I think it's important to demonstrate to its benefactors, those who are giving these supplies and these military capabilities, that they are being usefully employed in combat. And that provides a different kind of pressure, right, that you got to find a way to get these troops in that were trained by the West NATO style. you got to find a way to get these tanks into the battle. And I think, you know, there's, a, there's certainly the military calculus there. Where are they best suited to go, right? And, and we would hope that that would be kind of the overriding, uh, the overriding decision-making process. But there's also a need to show, okay, we're making good use of the supplies of the funds that we're receiving, and so those kind of two signaling stories, I think, get lost sometimes when we're looking at the the kind of day-to-day movements of troops and lines on the ground. Well, Jeff,
1: there must be something in the water today because uh, this doesn't happen very often. But once again, on this pod, I agree with you completely. I want to add uh, one other just piece to this. And, and I think this kind of gets to expectations. My sense is like one of the things that happened um, Last year, and we've, now we've been in this for, now for several years, so it's hard to remember exactly when these things happened. But that first sort of counter, uh, Ukrainian counter offensive that was super successful, right? That right. was like last summer, maybe September. Um, and people were looking at that and saying, my goodness, like that actually looked like at the time it had the potential to like defeat Russia, like have their military just like, completely break down. Yeah. Uh, they would just retreat in, in, you know, sort of shame, and the, and the whole thing might actually uh, be over. The, the success of that, I think, inflates then expectations for subsequent counter offenses. So in, in a way, it's just like sort of tragedy where, you know, because you did well in the first counter offenses, and when we're talking about counter without like beating back the people who are invading you, right? It's like, because you did well there, a year later, when, when you're in a similar position, there's sort of like higher expectations uh, because of that prior success, and so one of the things that might be happening is that as onlookers, you know, and in, in sort of like we think about counteroffensive with Ukraine, and we're like we expect them to do really well, and when they don't, or it looks like they're not being as successful as they were last year, that's when people get sort of disappointed, and they start to say, "Boy, they're not making as much progress as as I wanted." It's and it's because it's not because that the counteroffensive isn't, isn't successful; it's just relative to last year's counteroffensive, it doesn't look like. Uh, it's, it's particularly going well, and that's because it's what you're talking about. People are focused on the military outcomes, not the, the political outcome. And I think the, from a political perspective, what, we, what needs to be the case or what we, need, we need to understand that is this is all about sending the message to the West and NATO countries that their military and financial aid that has been being sent, the so-called investment that Zelensky you know, has talked about over and over again, particularly in the United States, is well worth it like keep on sending us this support because we're 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 doing you know good things with it we're able to fend off russia we have a counteroffensive um and that's that's the important point because the idea is that you want to show that ukraine is in a position of strength um and if you end up in a position where you can start to negotiate the end of the war whenever that ends up happening you you obviously want to be in a position of strength when you're trying to do, conduct those negotiations so showing the west that we're we're you know involved here and that this is this is going well um, and not be worried about sort of the military, you know, lines and things like that. You're talking about. I think is really what this was supposed to be. Lastly, and I think this is, you know, kind of a key point. I don't think the point of the the counteroffensive was ever to really be decisive, right? The expectation, I don't think, for for most analysts was. Ukraine is going to defeat Russia, you know. Full stop. They're just going to they're just going to leave, and the and the whole thing's going to be over. It wasn't really about that, so that can't be the sort of expectation. The expectation is that Ukraine is going to continue to fight, and they're going to continue to try to project as much strength as they can, and that the United States, Western, you know, allies, NATO countries should continue their uh, uh, investment because they're meeting at the moment what their goal is. It's not it's not decisive victory. The goal is to continue to have a like to counter. Uh, Russian aggression with their own strength.
0: Yeah, I thought it was kind of telling that the one of the first things to leak about this Ukrainian strike on the Russian naval base was that it was British Storm Shadow long range missiles mm-hmm. that were used mm-hmm. in this in this attack. And it's just like a way of saying, yeah, they're working. We're doing stuff, right? And we can we can kind of show show progress this way. The expectations around the counteroffensive, I think, is really interesting because you're, you saw before the counteroffensive. Um, Ukrainian officials trying to tamp down expectations, U.S. officials trying to tamp down expectations. Reminded me of presidential debates where you'll see like these (laughs) these stories before the debate. Our candidate can barely stand. Uh, You know, they they can't complete a coherent thought. If they survive five minutes in the debate, it'll be a win, you know, and then and then they're spinning it afterwards. Like we said we couldn't survive five minutes. We survived 10. You know, so our candidate really did it, did a great job, exceeded expectations. So the expectations game is, is certainly important. But when the bill comes due here, at the end of this, whatever this military operation is, there's going to need to be kind of an accounting for progress in the grand scheme of things, right? Like, what did this do in terms of improving the potential outcome from this conflict? And here, I think it's really interesting to think about how Ukraine decides to structure, to frame This counteroffensive, right? Are they going to say, okay, it's September 30th, counteroffensive has ended. Now we sit back and, you know, wait for the next counter -counter counteroffensive. Are they going to say, no, this is an ongoing operation and it's going to continue into the winter and no one can like sit back and relax on the on the other side? There's a framing of what the military forces are actually doing. And then there is the real question of, well, what happens next after this conflict, after this phase of the conflict? Because last summer, Ukrainian troops were exhausted after their counteroffensive. Russia had the chance to spend quite a long time reinforcing their lines which made this summer's counteroffensive a harder slog for Ukraine. Now, I I say this as we're hearing news of a Ukrainian breakthrough in a particular line of attack, that they're seeking to widen and support their flank. And maybe that will result in some big dramatic gain. Right. And we don't we don't know that yet as we're recording. But uh, even if it doesn't, um, there's this or either way, there is this question of what's how do we frame the conflict going forward so as to talk to these three audiences effectively the west to russia uh and to the domestic population marcus i think we should probably leave it there
1: i think we've we've covered a lot of territory today so i i, I agree
0: hey good luck uh in the next mountain ultra marathon
1: i appreciate it i'll let you know on the next pod i'll let you know how it goes i'll have a full uh race report as they say
0: if you listeners uh would like to tell us what we should be talking about point out where professor holmes was wrong please send us a note. We're at cheaptalkpod at gmail.com, or you can leave a voicemail at speakpipe.com slash cheaptalk. Marcus, thank you for joining me. Safe travels, and we'll see you next time.
1: Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Why are you going to Glasgow? I'm running the a, a Ben Nevis Ultra Marathon on
0: Sunday. Ah, oh, the marathons again. You're killing me. Yeah. Now, what's the surface for this?
1: It's a mountain. It's a mountain. A lot of rock.
0: Okay, so we need like a third flavor of treadmill for your training for this. <laughs> Cobblestone and flat is not enough. And my treadmill goes to fifteen
1: percent grade, which yeah. is like not nearly steep enough for like what you have to deal with in this uh, in this environment.
0: Have you been training for this in particular more outside your normal your normal thing?
1: Yeah, so I went over this uh, right before classes started, like the end of August. I went to you know Old Rag in Shenandoah. Sure, love it. Yeah. I I did that twice. So I ran, like, up over the boulders, this and that, back down, uh, and then a second time. So that's, like, all afternoon. And I was pretty tired after that. Like, that was, you know, and I wasn't just, like, hiking. I was, like, running. Um, And then I've done – I did a 50-mile run uh, a few weeks ago um, in – whatever, Suffolk. Um, there's like a 12-hour race where you just run around this lake. It's a mile uh, lake, and you just run around that as many times as you want for 12 hours. I stopped after about 10 hours because I was getting <laughs> bored. Uh, but that was 50 miles. Um, and then I was in Scotland uh, for one of the St. Andrews things, and I did a bunch of hiking um, over the summer, like a, a graduation period. So that's back in June. That counts, I guess. We're, you know, that's not too far removed. Uh, so i did doing more than I, you know, for, for, a, for a place like this place where we live, there's, like, no elevation whatsoever. I mean, there's not even hills in wings.: Yeah. I mean, I know we have, a, like, Long Hill. There's, like, that street exists in, like, five different places for some reason. Also, like, Ironbound Road, there's, like, 12 of those. But there's no, there's like no actual elevation change. Yeah. You can't go anywhere in this town and look down at anything. There's nothing. It's ridiculous. So, yeah, training's difficult.
0: Well, good luck with the, with the race. Yeah, appreciate it. It's gonna be fun.
1: I mean, I don't think it'd be fun, but you know,
0: none of this sounds like fun to me. I don't, I don't know why you do any of this stuff. It's the misery of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've chosen a good career for for that, um, Marcus. Um, <laughs> which leads me to to the topic for today. I mean, what
1: I would I would be curious to get your take on the the iPhone announcement. Like, what what is your you know, like the move to USB C USB C plugs instead of the little proprietary crap that they always make you like lightning. lightning I hate connection. that. I hate that. We have so many cables in this house, you know? And it's just like, you, you go for one. It's never the right one. You know, it's just ridiculous.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, so Apple's going to get a lot of pushback on this because there are a lot of people who have a big investment in these cables and like, of course and, they do. And peripherals. <laughs> and that's yes, exactly. You know, Exactly. And that's the reason. And then, but isn't
1: there like an EU law or something? Yeah, there's like,
0: an EU law. You know, like they like they have to do it starting next year. You and have the, to use it. Yeah, and also I like it, it's time, right? I mean, we, <laughs> you're right. It's like so painful if you have any other devices. You have to have – you always reach for the wrong cable. It's always the wrong one.
1: Right, exactly.
0: So let's standardize on USB. I mean, they've
1: milked this. They've milked this for as long as they can, you know, but the time has come for some like convergence. And, you
0: know, you're probably old enough to remember the 30 pin cable with the 30 oh, pin yeah. plug for like on iPods, yeah. like in the old days. Right. Where it was like, it was like, it was kind of it's long. It's a rigid right? like it's, row of like, yeah, like yeah, yeah, this yeah. huge thing. Right. And the, the response when they abandoned that for this tiny lightning connector was right. like incredible. Right. People were so upset, so upset and like hotel chains had invested millions in these, um, yeah, yep, you still see yep. them, right? These alarm clocks with the thirty-pin yeah, connector? Roll. We,
1: have, I mean, I probably in my like, I think in my drawer, I probably have some of these old connectors. You know, it's like I just have boxes and boxes of these stupid things. And I, I, the other problem I have is that I don't, I never throw things away. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm like one day that thirty-pin connector <laughs> it's is coming you know, come back in handy. <laughs> right? Yeah, I'm going to need that one day. Well, you're going
0: to find your old iPod, and then it's going to be like, well, how do I get information off of this thing? And, and precisely, We will be we'll to have it. But I mean, precisely. ten years is a a reasonable amount of time for a, like a plug, you know. So I think I think they did okay. So they they, did the, okay. the thirty pin connector lasted about ten years. This yeah. one, the lightning connector lasted about ten years. So I think it's it's time. I support it.
1: I wonder how much Apple has made on just on the lightning selling lightning connectors.
0: Well, it's not just the ones they sell too, right? So they have this this right. made for iPhone program where you like the people making the lightning cables can pay Apple. To get a certification that their plug is. Right, exactly. So, I mean, moving from Lightning to USB C, which is an open standard, means that stream of revenue is going away. So, that's a, you know, I guess one downside from Apple's perspective, but all of the, you know, the computers are all on USB C. Um, So, it makes sense. uh, All
1: the Android stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: And one kind of cool thing is if you have, I mean, you don't have these phones, you don't get to enjoy this stuff, but like I can now, if I get the new phone, I can plug. My phone into, like my watch to charge my watch from my phone, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is cool. Why not?
1: If you say so, you got if you, you got like so. extra
0: power on on the phone, but the watch is almost dead. You just plug it in.
1: I like that. Well, I guess that's kind of. I guess that's kind of cool. That way yeah. you don't have to actually like have multiple plugs. Yeah. yeah, that's good. By the way, this is great content. I'm glad I'm recording this. This is gonna make. Um, this is gonna round out the episode for us.